following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Tonight's talk uh, was also this morning's talk, but this will be the expanded version. It's about nurturing the Buddha within. Often religious symbols are learned as things outside of us. It kind of comes natural for children and perhaps for a naive understanding of the universe. Or other times we get involved with a spiritual tradition from a place of hurt or need or longing and we're looking for help. And there are times where looking for help within is not so compelling. Sometimes we're desperate and we're not too confident in our own resources. I'm not saying all the time, just sometimes. And so looking for a guide, a teacher, a savior, or something outside is a frequent starting point. I think both psychologically as well as historically. And also, as I mentioned, with developmentally, say, with children. But there's a point in a spiritual practice where the real resources are found to be internal. And one way to speak of them in Buddhist terms is the Buddha within. Sure, there are Buddhas outside, images which can be symbolically meaningful or inspiring, ideas, stories, legends about the historical Buddha, <clears throat> who he was, what he did, what he taught, what kind of guy he was, or teachers and exemplars of practice over the, the centuries. Tonight's talk will will emphasize not what we could call the historical Buddha or the external Buddha or even the cosmic Buddha way up in the sky somewhere, uh, but emphasize the the Buddha within. Sometimes this is a little tough for folks in this culture, or I'll speak for myself. The uh, upbringing and education I received in the Chicago area was 
um, basically a materialist, scientific perspective on life. There's a healthy dose of competition, rat race, dog-eat-dog, red in tooth and claw. And although the church I grew up in didn't make a lot of it, you know, a fair amount of the sinner business. Some of you probably share pieces of that, maybe quite a bit, where we come away with attitudes about human beings, such as a common belief among capitalist economists, which is kind of the dominant religion of America. Human beings, although in a way it's a false or pseudo-religion because it teaches or believes that human beings are fundamentally selfish. And supposedly the market system, capitalism, and those things are the best way to channel human selfishness. And that has a big impact on many of us. To think of the Buddha within is to turn that upside down. So those of you who are interested in being a little radical, uh, you can make this into a radical teaching, at least in terms of mainstream America. If you don't want to be radical, well, go ahead and soften it. But uh, to begin to consider that our nature, if you will, or what is most central or core to being human is not sinfulness, not selfishness, although obviously those things happen. I'm not, I'm not denying selfishness, sinfulness like greed, hatred, pride. But are they really core? In the Buddhist perspective, and I think all genuine spiritual traditions, even the one that speaks about sinners, I think somehow that got mangled along the way. But in genuine spiritual traditions, the perspective is, in Christian terms, and I'm not going to go too far with Christianity because it's not my thing, We're created in the image of God. God was not a capitalist (laughs) or an entrepreneur or a CEO, although actually you hear that kind of talk. So anyway, I'll leave that aside. To come back to Buddhism, the perspective is fundamentally what's going on in human beings or our our deepest potential is Buddhahood. Different Buddhist traditions have different takes on this. There's a term Buddha seed. In every conscious moment there is a seed of Buddhahood or Mahayana Buddhism talks of Buddha nature. 
And there are different metaphysical variations on that. But what's pretty, pretty common and central is that deep down, we are in the process of becoming Buddhas. It may be a few steps forward, a few steps back, uh, but that is what is the most important aspect of being human. If one is open to this perspective, you don't have to believe it 100%. Uh, belief is often dangerous. But at least to be open to the possibility that awakening into profound wisdom, wisdom that sees the world, sees life as it is, without a lot of bias and projection, awakening to compassion that cares deeply about all living things. Buddhahood is the freedom from egoism, greed, hatred, delusion. If we're open to this potential, then nurturing the seeds, the potential, or if you like, the baby Buddha, um, is one way to understand our, our practice. This morning, I remembered a uh, cute little uh, metaphor, I guess you'd call it, that the Buddha himself is recorded to have used. He described himself as the first chick to peck its way out of its egg. And then once outside the shell, the chick is going cheek, 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 to all its other nest mates, saying, hey, <laughs> don't be stuck in there. Your job is to crack through that thing and experience um, freedom, if you will. The shell represents ignorance. Foolish opinions, blind beliefs, crazy ideas, narrow-mindedness. This shell represents egoism. The way of going through life that keeps me at the center of everything and me gets too much importance whether positive, like I'm great, or negative, like I'm lousy, or no good, or stupid. Can, it's still egoism. It can be egoism with high self-esteem or egoism with low self-esteem. But it's still egoism. So I, I like that little story, the, uh, the chick that's pecking its way out of the shell and making a little noise to its nestmates to give encouragement, share suggestions, and 
ones outside let people know it's it's possible. I'd like to offer some thoughts, perspectives, practices about uh, pecking our way out, nurturing, cultivating the the seeds of Buddha, the Buddha potential, the awakening potential, which, by the way, is neither male nor female. It's not Indian or American or black or white or green or whatever, or Wisconsinite or Minnesotan or Lutheran or any of that. It's just, it's just there. So here are some um, perspectives about nurturing this Buddha potential. There's a way of greeting people. And in many places, you would be shy about doing this directly. But you can at least do it internally, which is you raise your hands in a lotus bud, often to the heart. Different cultures in Asia will do it to the heart, some to the third eye, the eye of wisdom. Whatever is respectful. If you're wagging it down by your navel, it's not very uh, respectful in some places. Just a perfunctory. But whatever feels <laughs> respectful, and the symbol represents of lotus represents purity and awakening. And there's a word used in India and cultures influenced by India, namaste or namaskara, which is more common in Thailand, which I've heard explained as the the Buddha in me greets the Buddha in you. I think Thich Nhat Hanh puts it that way. I'm often blur some of those sources. Or um, another version I've heard is, I honor the Buddha in you. I think this is one way to cultivate the Buddha within by learning to see the Buddha within others. And then the flip side of that is the more we, like just going down the street, and maybe, you know, your average Minneapolite, or whatever you call them, um, <laughs> wouldn't be so, you know, would be a little freaked out if you did this and said, the Buddha in me honors the Buddha in you, or something. You can try it. <laughs> or you can at least do it in your heart, do it internally as a practice to begin to shape how you see other other Buddhas to be or other beings in the process of awakening whether they know it or not. And then that becomes a mirror for ourselves. If we practice seeing this in others, we can also begin to see it in ourselves and maybe even have a little faith that um, it's possible. 
and not worrying up too much about how much time it's going to take, how many retreats I have to go on, and all that stuff. Those are just details. Um, and you can even do it when you look in the mirror. You know, look at that funny face getting old or whatever. Not all of us, but a number of us. <laughs> and can you look look that person in the eyes for the reflection and and respect, honor, welcome, greet the Buddha you see looking back at you. For me, it's a pretty uh, challenging thought because I'm not really yet fully comfortable seeing myself that way, myself, self, self, whatever it is, that way. So that's a practice um, that you can play with, be creative with, explore. If you really completely reject and deny any possibility of Buddhahood in others, like that, you know, nasty neighbor or that horrible boss or that politician you can't stand, then you're also denying it in yourself. And there's a lot of that going around. It's pretty sad, pretty depressing. Now, you could go half-baked with this as well. When I used to lead retreats in Thailand, just about every month we had enough. Often they were Germans. Americans wanted to be teachers. Germans wanted to be enlightened. It, it was almost a parody of, on the retreat circuit in that uh, Unfortunately, our monastery became part of it. So you'd have this guy in the back of the room, and he was enlightened, I guess. So, so anyway, one approach. Another way of nurturing the Buddha within is generosity, sharing. Central to becoming a Buddha is letting go. Every time we let go, and I mean genuinely let go, not when somebody else pries our fingers loose from something, but when we, we have our own volition, our own wisdom, compassion, whatever, let go, Every time that's a little bit of an opening of the lotus or another little peck in the shell. And for many of us, generosity is a simple, easy to understand, pragmatic way of letting go. Especially in America where we value stuff, where property is really important. It's sacred. And so to be able to let go a little bit of stuff, which, you know, we've got way too much of, and yet we're, you know, we only let go of it when it's broke or out of date or out of fashion. Anyway, when we let go of something, not because it's old, broken, or out of fashion, but because we see that somebody else could benefit it from it more than we need it. 
there's some letting go, some weakening of the shell of egoism. Of course, generosity and sharing aren't just about material stuff. There are many ways we can share. And that, too, is an opening. Effective giving, sharing, generosity is about becoming increasingly sensitive to what, what people really need, which includes finding out what we really need. Do we need more stuff? What do we really need as human beings? So practicing generosity thoughtfully, mindfully, with sensitivity, with authenticity, sincerity, you know, not just out of obligation or to look good or not look bad, but when it comes enough from the heart, there's, there's an opening. And this sort of greases the wheels of letting go. A third angle on nurturing the Buddha within is to cultivate our caring for suffering. It seems to me that we live in a time when our culture is kind of coming down to earth. Things that used to look kind of easy, things that we, or maybe I'm just coming down to earth and others have been there for quite a while. but. A lot of things that maybe we used to take pride in or believe in are sort of, seems to me, crumbling. <clears throat> now, probably this has been going on in various ways throughout human history. So it's not like Americans invented suffering. But right now we have a population of Lots of people who are overworked, stressed out, afraid of all kinds of things, crime, cancer, terrorism, unemployment, um, feeling guilty about stuff, oil spills, for example. So kind of puts us in a quandary because it can be overwhelming. And it's tempting to just, you know, channel surf, lose ourselves in the internet, to have a few beers, watch another movie, plug in music, tune out, or even turn meditation into something escapist. So there's a real challenge and also uh, a need to be skillful and nuanced about both opening to suffering 
and not getting lost in it. To learn to be open-hearted about all the pain that's going on around us on many levels and inside us, but not punishing ourselves with that. There's a lot of fear of it, I think. And so we do have a culture now that's pretty adept at avoiding reality. Um, a lot of money goes into that. A lot of money is made off of that. And then things break through, and we don't know how to deal with it. In Buddhist tradition, awakening is about awakening to the reality of suffering and realizing the end of suffering. The kind of hope that we often try to get away with is, can we do an end run around the suffering part and just get enlightened real quick, you know, and get to that no more suffering part? I'll bet you it doesn't quite work that you can sort of just avoid the messy stuff, pretend it's not there, develop a nice meditation posture, get your designer Zafu and our sub-guru come and zap you or something. It's hard, it's difficult, it can be painful but opening to caring about suffering is, is part of the practice. And then committing ourselves more and more. There's a part of us, you know, the part that wants things easy, wants things to be comfy, nice, convenient, that doesn't want to go there. But when it finally sinks in enough that people have been suffering over and over and over and over and over again, and so are we. Not always big time suffering, sometimes it's just petty annoyance type things. But when we really wake up to that, then we also find a urge, which becomes a commitment to alleviate suffering. The do-gooder sometimes skips the opening up and caring part and tries to kind of rationalize or be busy solving problems or helping others. But unless we're really grounded in heartfelt awareness and sensitivity to suffering, it, it often slips back into more ego games. So letting ourselves care about suffering, and then the tricky part is not taking it personally. Uh, in, in my experience, um, somebody who's dabbled in various forms of social activism one of the traps I've fallen into many times is thinking I have to solve something. 
I have to do something in creating an obligation, a burden, even a little bit of um, messianic martyrdom around it. Those seem to me to all be ego-based and actually not real. Suffering is real, but the suffering that's going on is going on in all kinds of ways on many levels. Some of it's directly happening personally. So you can take that somewhat personally. But a lot of it is transpersonal, it's social, it's ecological. And some would say it's just built into the nature of a universe where uh, that's governed by the three laws of thermodynamics, i.e. entropy, everything is moving towards disorder. You know, it's kind of the physical, physics side of suffering. Everything's ready to fall apart. And that's hard. And none of us have control of it. And a lot of things, it's not like I'm making it all by myself. If we really look into the patterns, the relationships. So if we can let go of that sense of, I need to solve this, I need to do something about it, or I don't want to deal with this. It's too much for me. But that too much for me is because there's an ego trying to deal with it. If we can learn to relax that, we can be more open to the suffering without making it another burden or problem. It seems to me that's a big step towards letting go of suffering. So finding the middle way of caring about dukkha, which is another way of talking about compassion. The heartfelt wish to help as many beings as possible, including the one that's right here, to help beings be free of suffering. Another perspective, and I'm I'm going to, is to honor the Dhamma. I mention this because there's a verse from the early discourses that I used to chant all the time, and it still pops up into my head frequently. It goes something like, all Buddhas of the past, the Buddhas who are yet to awaken, and the Buddha who heals the sorrow of beings today. All those Buddhas honor the Dhamma. Now the context for this is something that's maybe out of date for Americans. But in older cultures, 
it was just normal that there were things you honored. Parents in, in like Thai culture or Buddhist influence culture. Parents, teachers, monks or religious uh, mentors and leaders or any benefactor is someone to be honored. Um, we've deconstructed a lot of that in the last century. And I'm not saying all that deconstruction is bad, but often we're left with not much that we honor. You know, maybe a, a movie star or a football player, Brett Favre or something. I don't mind that you stole them from Wisconsin because <laughs> I'm a Bears fan. But <laughs> anyway, sorry for the distraction. So in that context of part of being a normal human being or a healthy human being is there are things you honor. So that posed a dilemma for the newly awakened Buddha because when you're a Buddha, you know, you look around popes, kings, presidents, you know, big deal. To a Buddha, uh, you're at least in Buddha's perspective, uh, Buddhahood's beyond such institutional uh, roles. So what does a Buddha honor? And uh, I already repeated the verse, all those Buddhas honor the Dhamma. So I think this too is a practice for nurturing the Buddha within practicing honoring the Dhamma. And I don't so much mean honoring a particular set of teachings, although that's called the Dhamma too, but more the truth, the reality that those teachings point to. Here's a few quick examples. Um, a core Dhamma in India, even before the Buddhist time and definitely since, has been non-harming. It's a, primarily an ethical behavioral dhamma. That if you value your life, if you'd like to get through the world without being killed or ripped off or treated badly, then practice non-harming. So that's a take on dhamma. It's not the whole story, but it's, it's a good foothold on the path to practice non-harming. Nowadays, it's tricky. Uh, we've created a really complex society. It's a lot different than the Buddhist time. So our involvement in harming is, is complicated because it's sometimes second or third hand. And yet choices we make support violence, um, such as ecological or military, and so on. So learning to honor the Dhamma of non-harming. And, and not, you know, being guilty when we don't do it so perfectly, but taking it on, exploring, moving in that direction. 
Another way of honoring the Dhamma is to take on certain frames of reference for how we think about life. If you're middle class, security is a really important framework, seems to me. Security. You know, and now we live in a national security state which is used to manipulate us big time. So thinking in terms of security has, takes up a lot of modern bandwidth. Can we shift that? Um, one kind of basic yet profound perspective for reflecting on life is skillfulness or wholesomeness. And then the other side is unskillfulness. Skillful is a more refined, sophisticated perspective than something like good with its opposite bad. And skillful is an inquiry into what truly serves human life and probably all life. A classic Buddhist way to frame that or is the end of suffering. But that those words may not be the most effective for you. But to when you have questions about what to do, when you're coming to terms with feelings and thoughts and ideas, theories, beliefs, you know, is it primarily about who's right, who's wrong, who's going to win, who's going to lose, who's better? Was smarter? Or can we shift it by asking, with this situation, with that situation, in this relationship, with this choice or decision, what's skillful? What truly serves my life and the lives I'm interacting with? What serves society, the ecosystem I'm part of, and so on? To take on this kind of inquiry is another way of nurturing the Buddha within. It's another way of honoring the Dhamma. The last thing I'd like to mention is emptiness. Didn't have time for this this morning, but I want to drop it in tonight. At the core of Buddhahood, if uh, hopefully this will make a little sense, is emptiness. It's true of Dhamma and Sangha as well. It doesn't mean nothing. It doesn't mean the Buddha isn't real or the Dhamma isn't truthful. But it means there's nothing to grab or hold on to. There's nothing to possess, own, or control. There's nothing worth clinging to as me or mine. You could say this is the ultimate way to honor the, du the Dhamma, the ultimate way to nurture the Buddha, to 
explore and realize emptiness. Emptiness means all things are empty of a, a persistent, abiding essence or self. Something that isn't just a momentary appearance, but we often believe that there's things, or especially me, that's real and it lasts. And on one level of thinking and living, that's okay. But we tend to hang on to this and create rigidities. It's where self-centeredness coagulates. We get defensive and aggressive about this. So to begin to explore the emptiness of all of our ideas, beliefs, views, theories about me, self. It's likely that some of you are hearing these words and wondering what I'm talking about. That's okay. I'm not saying I fully understand it either. But... Uh, It can be an interesting uh, path to follow, exploring our own emptiness, the emptiness of Buddha, the emptiness of Dhamma, which doesn't mean things don't exist. They just don't exist quite as substantially as we pretend they are. So these are some perspectives more or less practical for nurturing the Buddha within. And we have a little time for discussion, should anybody wish. Based on my experience with various activists and my own as well, um, one, take care of yourself. If you can't take care of yourself, you're probably not doing that great of a job taking care of whoever your clients or your whatever you call them are. Second, explore how to integrate spiritual practice and activism. I've met many activists, including Buddhist activists, who see them as sort of separate parts of their life. And so they often appear to people as in conflict. 
and there's pressure in the activist world, you know, there's always more to do, it seems. And it's a little different when it's become over-professionalized and people make too much money and that happens. But for real committed activists, you know, it's endless. And it's a Buddhist perspective is sure, and it's never going to end. So there's an illusion that if we just work harder, if we just do more of this, raise more money, blah, 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 get more signatures on that internet petition, which are empty too, um, <laughs> maybe in more ways than one, although I sign a lot of them. Uh, you know, so there's a trap there. And so, and then other people, I think, too many people kind of, oh, we don't need to do that. We're just going to be spiritual here and we'll pray and that'll change the world. There's a time, there's a, one of the world parliaments of religion. I think it was in South Africa, maybe a while ago. And the Dalai Lama was there and people said, let's pray for world peace. And the Dalai Lama kind of called them on it and said, yeah, sure, we can pray, but, you know, we got to do something, too. Just sitting around praying for it is, you know, we do, you know. So, I'm not sure the Dalai Lama did that. So, so anyway, integrating, finding, finding a larger perspective that integrates the two. Like, for me, activism is a way of service. Not making it against anybody so much, even though I still have my kind of biases against, say, capitalist structures or authoritarian structures. But the more we're doing that against things, the more we're me against them, there's more conflict. So to see our activism as service, and that to me can fit within an understanding of the Noble Eightfold Path. In Hindu teaching, it's called Karma Yoga. And Buddhists can work with that as well. Um, you just mentioned kind of this Christian background that a lot of us grew up with. And um, I thought of a Christian church. Um, it's so difficult to integrate that. That's your own resonates a little more with the perspective of this liberal church. Even though I think they're open to different interpretations. But I, I wonder if, if you made some peace with that or if you just pushed the Christian tradition aside because it doesn't fit this. I haven't pushed it aside. And for years I I did a lot of interfaith dialogue. And, and have did a lot of work in the Philippines with Catholics, priests, nuns. But more recently, it's just, it doesn't speak to me. So it's, it's not that I pushed it aside, I just kind of leave it. And I'm not saying that's right or better, it's just, I'm pretty happy and trying to make sure I'm not just stuck. But I'm, I'm pretty happy with Buddhist teachings, Buddhist perspectives, and the God talk, the Jesus talk just doesn't do much. Right now it doesn't do anything for me. But I do, there's a lot in um, 
some of the like we're good friends with a local Episcopal priest she actually married my wife and I so you know we get together and God comes up and Dhamma comes up and we don't make a problem of it so so that's my personal take on it I used to do a little um, theological gymnastics kind of a Buddhist take on God and I've worked in when I was in Chicago I did a lot with some 12-step groups so a Buddhist re frame of higher power higher power is Dhamma for example so there if one and if there was a time this was pretty important to me and just right now it's not so important I don't know how it'll be in a few years but there are some kind of fun creative and I think constructive ways to not make the different concepts uh, polar not not let them be in opposition either complementary or let them rub against each other and at times and it's been my experience in the past although I'm not doing it so much right now that you can well actually I've benefited by at times sitting down with say a Catholic friend and really trying to understand what he believes and then letting that challenge my current understanding of Buddhism I've, I've found that helpful so, a few random responses maybe time for one more comment or a question if anybody has one but I, I've been checking the newspapers and there's some websites with some pretty good commentary and one is uh, boy I'm not sure what's going on and I don't know there's some people who I think get pieces of it but it's probably pretty complicated it goes back to historical developments I think it's also fostered by the United States's war on terrorism. It's one of the indirect ways that, you know, because some of those, um, what are they called, those dark sites where they, Amer the CIA tortures people, some of those have been in Thailand. And so I could go more into that, but there's, it's complicated, but the perspective that's currently making the most sense to me is the old the traditional elite has let down the population and and that includes certain political parties like the current government and by the way, I know a few of them personally, not real well, but I've met them. And, um, 
And then there's this movement, which in the press is described as the red shirts, and that's complicated. Anybody who gives you one perspective on it is way oversimplifying, because there's a lot of different things going on. So it's partly certain politicians manipulating it, but there are a lot of people with genuine grievances. Thailand has had, there's a period of 10 years where Thailand had more economic growth than anywhere else in the world. But that was largely, the beneficiaries were not the bottom 20, 40% of society. They benefited a little, but others were benefiting a whole lot more. And kind of like here, the gap between rich and poor has grown quite a bit. And so that's opened up uh, things that people were willing to live with before they're not willing to live with. And the you know TVs in every house means you're if you're poor you're confronted with what you don't have. And it appears other people do have it. And that, that a lot of people kind of seem to have reached their their breaking point on some of that. And so there's all kinds of these things going on. And I would say, just like America, right now there is no leadership capable of really looking at the whole picture. The current political leaders are too factionalized and too concerned for them and their, their um, factions which is what I think is going on here. None of our leadership, doesn't matter what political party affiliation is really, I believe. I could be wrong. Maybe I should hope I'm wrong, but not really capable to look beyond, because the system has kind of gotten really narrow and rigid. And so the thinking is stuck. And I, I think it's really stuck there as well. And so unfortunately, perhaps um, there's going to be more deterioration until things break up enough that some new, new thinking and new leadership can emerge. And that, unfortunately, might be very painful. But like with this recent thing in uh, Israel and Gaza, uh, be careful what you read in the mainstream press. It's not trustworthy. Or it's, it's one side. It's often part of the truth, but leaves out important things. So. Thank you so much, Dr. Carl. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.